Hello again. This is the perfect puzzle where we study the Bible as it is written. And today I'd like to get started with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to learn as I pray every time. I ask you, Father, to fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might learn the things that you want us to learn, Father. Help us to grow in the knowledge of your Son and the power of his resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're in this supernatural series today, or in this session, we are talking about sacred space. You know, the Israelites spent over a year at Mount Sinai. They had already entered into a covenant with God. They'd received the Ten Commandments. They still had a lot to learn. It was one thing to promise to believe in and be loyal to the God of their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was quite another to know what God expected and what God was like. You know, Israel existed because Yahweh had supernaturally enabled the birth of Isaac. Israel continued to exist because Yahweh wanted a people on earth by his own plan and by his own power. The lesser Elohim he had placed over the disinherited nations, particularly those in Egypt at this point of the story, cannot prevent his will. There is no God like Yahweh. His goal of making the earth a new Eden will not be overturned. Now before the plagues and the exodus from Egypt, the descendants of Jacob knew Yahweh only by reputation and oral storytelling. There was no Bible. Now they, now they were at his mountain ready to journey to the land he had taken for himself and for them. They had the tablets of the law. That's just a starting point. Egypt and her gods had been defeated, but the conflict with the gods and their nations was just beginning. Israel needed to understand that being Yahweh's portion meant separation from the gods and the nations who stood ready to oppose them. The concept of realm distinction was, is fundamental to the supernatural worldview of ancient Israel. Many of the strange laws and practices of the Old Testament are grounded in the need to teach people that God is unlike everything else. In his nature and character, he is unique. He is completely other than humanity or anything else. For Israel, that was the truth that had to be reinforced at times, because otherwise God might be thought of as ordinary. Yahweh is and Elohim, he's not a mortal man. Appearing as a human being was a condes condescension that enabled the lesser minds of us mortals to comprehend his presence and live to tell about it. Yahweh is so other as to be incomprehensible without the facade of something familiar. And yet for Israel, his otherness would need to remain an ever-present reality that would needed to be sensed at all time. A concept of otherness was at the core of Israelite identity. Otherness is the core of holiness. The Hebrew vocabulary for holiness means to be set apart or to be distinct. While the idea has a moral dimension related to conduct, it's not intrinsically about, more, about morality. It is about distinction. 
Israel's identification with Yahweh by virtue of his covenant with Abraham and the terms of the covenant at Sinai meant that as Leviticus 19.2 concisely summarizes, Israelites were to be set apart holy as Yahweh was set apart holy. Now, Yahweh's complete otherness was reinforced in the minds of Israelites through worship and sacrifice. Yahweh was not only the source of Israel's life, he was life. Yahweh was complete in his perfections. He's not of earth, a place where there's death, disease, and imperfection. His realm is supernatural. Ours is earthly. The space he occupies is sacred and made otherworldly by his presence. The space we occupy is profane or ordinary. Yahweh is the antithesis of ordinary. Humans must be invited and purified to occupy the same space. Now the biblical word for the idea of God's unique otherness, as I said earlier, is holiness, which means to be set apart. Okay? It's not about moral conduct, though. The concept is not about, to be holy. It's not, about, it's not about the idea that we should behave a certain way to reflect God's distinct moral standards, although it's included in it. Once again, that's Leviticus 19.2. See, God wasn't content to simply give Israelites an intellectual explanation of holiness. He wanted the concept of his otherness to permeate life in ancient Israel. The Bible tells us this was accomplished through rituals, symbolic acts, and by rules for approaching sacred areas. Now, how is God other? To reiterate, the short answer to that question is in every way, but that's too abstract. The Bible is much more down to earth, and the rituals and rules for Israelite community living reflect that. For example, the Bible teaches us that God was not only the source of Israel's life, as I said earlier, he was life. God is not of this earth. Our realm is terrestrial. His realm is supernatural. In ancient Israel, these ideas were, you know, were conveyed by the fact that people had to be invited and purified to occupy the same space as God. Many laws in the Old Testament regulate this purifying. Israelites could be disqualified or made unclean from sacred space by a variety of activities and conditions, which included having sex, losing blood, certain physical handicaps, Touching a dead body, human or animal, all rendered an Israelite unclean. Unclean. Israelites were forbidden from eating certain birds of prey that ate from dead animals, such as vultures and hawks. That prohibition is in Leviticus 11, verses 13 to 19. Or animals that might be found on or inside a carcass, like lizards or mice. That's a Again, that's Leviticus chapter 11, verses 24 to 40 this time. In these instances, uncleanness was not about morality, but rather about association with, with loss of life and the incompatibility of that with God's perfection. You know, even though the logic is simple, it feels foreign to our modern minds. 
Loss of blood and sexual fluids were perceived as the loss of that which created and sustained life. And God was not to be associated with the loss of life, but rather with being the giver of life. Requiring purification after the loss of such fluids was a reminder of God's nature. Similar purification was required after being made unclean by contact with the dead. One could be excluded from sacred areas in Israel due to physical imperfection or, in or injury. In this case, because such imperfection is incompatible with God's perfection. And all these laws are intended to drive home a supernatural worldview. Being unclean and unfit to approach sacred space was a serious matter for ancient Israelites. They couldn't bring sacrifices and offerings to the required locations if they were unclean. Now the solution was ritual purification, which sometimes in involved its own sacrifice or a waiting period. You know, blood sacrifices, though, had a theological purpose because they introduced the concept of, su of substitution. Since blood was a life force, as in Leviticus 17.11, the taking of an animal life taught the lesson that approaching God on any terms except his own meant death. The blood of the sacrifice was a merciful substitute to rectify an Israelite's defiled, unclean state. The teaching point is that God was preserving an Israelite's life by substituting the sacrifice. Human life is more sacred than human life because humans are created in God's image. Israelites owed their existence by supernatural intervention that enabled Abraham and Sarah to have a child back in Genesis 12. But human life was in peril in the presence of a holy God. Sacrifices reminded them that God had power over life and death, and God wanted to show them mercy. I draw an attention to God's otherness, communicated certain ideas, not only about God, but also about supernatural boundaries. The idea of the realm distinction was fundamental to the supernatural worldview of Israel. If, God's, if where God's presence dwelt was holy, the ground everywhere else was not. It was either ordinary or in some cases hostile and evil. Now the description of the tabernacle as a tent dwelling is significant. In other places in the biblical world, deities and their councils were considered to live in tents on top of their cosmic mountains and in their lush gardens. The tent of the god or gods was, as with mountains or lush gods, the place where heaven and earth intersected and where the divine decrees were issued. Now this is a common cultural idea, perhaps akin or similar to how many people think of church today. Church is a place you expect to meet God or where God can be found. Moses was told to construct the tabernacle and its equipment according to the pattern shown to him by Yahweh on the holy mountain. You can read that in Exodus 25.9, 25.40, and 26.30. The implication is that the tabernacle on earth is to be a copy of the heavenly tent in accord with the religious principle of as in heaven, so on earth. 
Now the heavenly tent prototype is was the heavens themselves, as Isaiah forty twenty two tells us. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and his inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. This kind of language is also why the earth is referred to as God's footstool in Isaiah 66.1. God sits above the circle of the earth in his heavenly tent on his throne above the waters, which are above the firmament, and rests his feet on the earth, which is his footstool. That's Job 9 verse 8 and Psalm 104 verse 2. As Eden was the place where humanity experienced the presence of God, so too was the tabernacle, and particularly true for the priest. But God's presence originally, occasionally met Israel's leader outside the Holy of Holies. You can read about that in Leviticus 9.23, Numbers 12, verses 5 to 19, and verse 20, verse, in chapter 20, verse 6. Deuteronomy 31.15 Now the most obvious instance being the glory cloud of Exodus chapter 40 verses 34 and 35. The menorah or the lampstand in the tabernacle is in an analogy with the tree of life in Eden. The lampstand was fashioned in the appearance of a tree. Exodus 25 verses 31 to 36. And it was stationed directly outside the Holy of Holies. It stood guard in front of the veil that blocked the way to the Holy of Holies, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was stationed. The cherubim inside the Holy of Holies are also a clear connection to Eden. In Eden, the cherubim stood guard at the dwelling place of God in Eden. Their position atop the lid to the Ark of the Covenant is not a coincidence. The innermost sanctum of the tabernacle was the place from which God would govern Israel. The cherubim form a throne for the invisible Yahweh. Later, when the tent of the most holy place was moved into the temple, two giant cherubim were installed within for Yahweh's throne, making the ark his footstool. The entrance to Eden was from the east. That's in Genesis 3.24. That's also the direction from which one entered the tabernacle and one entered later the temples of Israel. Genesis 2.12 tells us that good gold and bedillium and onyx stone were in, were in the land of Havilah, apparently where Eden was. We don't know where Havilah was, but of course, various items of tabernacle furniture were made of gold, as were the wall, ceiling, and floor of the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple. That's First Kings chapter six, verses twenty twenty-two. The cherubim, like I said earlier, inside the Holy of Holies, are the clear connection to Eden. The cherubim inside guarded of the Holy of Holies guarded the lid to the ark. The temple was also decorated like the Garden of Eden filled with the images of lush vegetation and animals. First Kings chapter 6 to 7 flowers, palm trees, lions and pomegranates were carved into its architecture. It's a visual reminder of the place where God had first come to earth to live with his human family. 
But Israelites also needed to be reminded of the dark side of the cosmic geography. If the Israelite camp and later the nation of Israel was holy ground, the home of God and his people, then the terrain outside Israel was unholy ground. God had, you know, long before Sinai, forsaken the other nations and given them over to lesser gods. We've talked about that before. He would one day reclaim the nations, but during biblical days, they were realms of darkness. One Israelite ritual brought this lesson home in an unforgettable detail. The Day of Atonement, which is Yom Kippur, is held every year. It's described in Leviticus chapter 16. And it included a fascinating object lesson to remind people about holy and unholy ground. Two goats were involved. One was sacrificed and its blood sprinkled in the sanctuary to cleanse it of human defilement for another year. The sacrificed goat was for the Lord. This goat, the other goat, wasn't killed. It was sent out into the wilderness after the high priest symbolically transferred the sins of the people onto it. That goat was for Azazel. A-Z-A-Z-E-L. Who or what is Azazel? Some translations in the Bible render the word scapegoat instead of Azazel. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Hebrew word Azazel is a proper name. The name of a demon. The Old Testament itself does not state that Azazel was a demon. Now, the identification of the term with the demon probably derives from cosmic geography and associated in the wilderness with the forces of chaos which are hostile to God. It makes sense on several levels. As the desert would only be a forbidding, a place forbidding to life, but is ground outside the camp of the Israel and Yahweh, the source of life, it would have a clear association with chaos. Leviticus 17.7 suggests that the Israelites saw the desert as spiritually sinister. That verse says, So that they shall no more sacrifice, sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. We're not told, we're not told why, they, why they did that. But the placement of the problem in proximity to the ritual goat to Azazel suggests a conceptual connection. Jews of later periods certainly made such a connection. The point of the goat for Azazel was not that something was owed to the demonic realm as though a ransom was being paid. The goat for Azazel banished the sins of the Israelites to the realm outside Israel. Why? Because the ground on which Yahweh had his dwelling was holy. Sin had to be transported to where evil belonged, the territory outside Israel, under the control of God set over the pagan nations. See, the high priest was not sacrificing to Azazel. Rather, Azazel was getting what belonged to him, sin. Now, the concept of realm distinction and cosmic geography, they go hand in hand. Every day ancient Israel's journey to promised land reiterated some point in regard to who they were and their purpose on earth. The invisible Yahweh and the visible Yahweh were present as cloud and angel. 
who is leading his people through the domain of hostile gods and their people to Israel's own divinely allotted home. When they were camped, the glow of Yahweh's fire over the tabernacle, which was Eden returned to earth, illuminated the camp. They were Yahweh's portion. The forces of chaos, whether seen or unseen, were on every border. Now you would think that the living object lessons would have ensured faith when it came time to confront those forces, but that wasn't to be. You know, times changed by the time of the New Testament, but they also stayed the same. God is still other. His holiness requires that we be purified to enter his presence. For us, that's accomplished by believing in what Jesus did on the cross. Everything Jesus did on our behalf had supernatural overtones. He went out into the wilderness, the place we would expect to find the forces of evil, and overcame Satan's temptation. That event was followed by the beginning of his ministry, which culminated in overcoming the devil, who has the power of death, according to Hebrews 2.14. Jesus was crucified outside the holy city. He was unclean because our sins were upon him, and Jerusalem was holy ground. Jesus' death and resurrection sanctify us. They make us fit for God's presence. Our sins were taken away. Romans 11:27. You can also see 1 John 3:5. Though unclean sinners, we are holy if we are in Christ. Though imperfect, our imperfections are overlooked because of Jesus. It really is that simple. Yet it's very profound. And we tend, you know, we tend to think the Israelites were in many ways more spiritually privileged than, than we are. After all, they had God's presence right in their midst. They live in a world where supernatural cosmic geography was real. We tend to think we, we would be more spiritual. We'd be more tuned in to God if only we had what they had. If only those continual reminders of God were our reality. Well, here's something for you if that's what you think. The New Testament says that they are. We don't need a tabernacle or temple to mark sacred space. Our bodies are sacred space. Paul calls our earthly bodies a tent in 2 Corinthians 5.4 because we are indwelt by the same divine presence that filled the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and the temple. That's, Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 8 verses 9 through 11. Eventually our body, their earthly home of our spirit, is going to die, only to be replaced by a house not made with hands, 2 Corinthians 5 verses 1 to 3, a heavenly dwelling, the new Eden, heaven returned to earth, according to Revelation 22 verses 1 through 3. You know, since God indwells believers today through his spirit, each church each gathering of believers is holy ground. That's why Paul, when telling the Corinthians to expel an unrepentant Christian who was living in sin, he instructed them to 
deliver this man to Satan in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5. You see, the church was holy ground. Outside the fellowship of believers was the domain of Satan. That's where sin and its self-destruction belong. So, Paul was telling these Corinthian Christians, put this man out of the church. You know, it's time we looked at ourselves through supernatural eyes. You are a child of God, fit for sacred space. Not because of what you do or what you don't do, but because you are in Christ. You're adopted by God. Romans 8:15, Galatians chapter 4, verse 5. You've been extracted from the realm of darkness, and according to Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, you have been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved Son. We must never, ever, not for a moment, forget who we are in Christ and what that means to the world. To the world. So to review our progress so far, the judgment at Babel made the world a very different place. Before Yahweh's disinheritance of the nations, he had been in a covenant relationship with all the descendants of Noah. God had told Noah's sons to be fruitful and multiply and overspread the earth in Genesis 9, chapter verse 1. It's no accident these were also the words given to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, verses 22 and chapter 1, verse 28. The sons of Noah were to expand God's family and carry on the original goal of an Edenic world. But then Babel happened and it undermined all that. In response, Yahweh made the nations outsiders. If his will was too burdensome, then they could just go serve other gods with a little g. Yahweh would transfer the Edenic dream to someone else. At the time of the Tower of Babel, it was a people who didn't even exist yet, but they soon would. Yahweh came to Abraham in human form, just as he had with Adam and Eve in Genesis, you know, in Genesis 3.8. The contact was personal because the interest was personal. Yahweh's kingdom rule would be built on covenant loyalty. Yahweh would remain faithful, and beginning with Abraham, all who wished to participate could do so. If they, just like Abraham, believed the covenant promises and turned away from the other gods. The promises would then, you know, were passed from Abraham to Isaac, and then to Jacob, who was later renamed Israel. Yahweh's family would be preserved through Joseph and delivered through Moses. The deliverance, of, of course, was a means to an end. Yahweh wanted what he had wanted from the beginning, a mingling of his heavenly and earthly families on the earth he had called into existence. To that end, he brought Israel home to Sinai. One element of the original pact with Abraham had come to pass. Israel was now numerous. But as yet, Yahweh's people had no land. They had yet to fulfill the role of blessing the nations. Drawing, them, drawing the nations back to the one who had cast them aside. There was one task remaining. Yahweh would bring Israel to Canaan where these two covenantal promises would be fulfilled. 
he would also live among them in that land. To those ends, the covenant for living in the presence of God, remaining in the land, and being a kingdom of priests, was enacted in the presence of witnesses. Those witnesses were Yahweh's divine counsel. When his people were threatened, whether by gods or men, Yahweh would intervene visibly as the angel in a burning bush, the embodied name leading Israel through the wilderness, the commander of Yahweh's forces on the field of battle. At a conflict between gods and men, little g, Israel was hopelessly outnumbered. But they had the God who mattered. All that was needed on Israel's part was believing loyalty, or as the song puts it, trust and obey. What could go wrong? We'll start finding out all about that in our next session. Thank you for listening. This is the perfect puzzle.